0: The Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, Freemasonry revealed as centuries-long conspiracy to obtain milk from the Big Dipper. Illuminated manuscripts and levitating lollipops. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part two of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon. Eric and Chuck discuss their latest entry in the Ring of Fire alternate history series. That is called 1636 The Vatican Sanction." It's a fun discussion about the ecumenical disputes that uh, time travelers showing up from modern America in the middle of 1630s Europe would cause and what firearms are best for close quarters protection of popes. Also, it's a fun book. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of the Aden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. We're also going to liven things up for the holiday season by using a few transitional musical numbers this time. See if you like them. Now here's the news. Hey, we have a great omnibus collection this month. It's Volume 3 and completes the absolute and total reissue of Susan R. Matthews' Under Jurisdiction series. This one is called Fleet Insurgent. Fleet Inquisitor and Fleet Renegade collected the first six books in the series, and now Fleet Insurgent collects the novellas Susan has written that are set in the Under Jurisdiction series. They're all centering on former Fleet Inquisitor Andrew Kosciuszko, who rebels against the totalitarian jurisdiction Star Empire to free the slaves of empire. Fleet Insurgent contains... Two all-new novellas, by the way, so if you have these three volumes plus under-jurisdiction novel Blood Enemies, which came out this year, you'll have everything up to date on this wonderful star-spanning space opera series. Fleet Insurgent is now available in trade paperback at booksellers everywhere. Check it out. This is part two of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon discussing 1636, The Vatican Sanction. Part one of the interview can be found on last week's podcast. I uh, want to welcome Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon to the podcast. Hello, guys. Nice to have you back again.
2: Uh, hello. And Hello.
1: Eric Flint is a modern master of alternative history fiction with over 3 million books in print. He's the author and creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, starting with first novel, 1632. And with David Drake, he's written six popular novels in the Belisarius alternate Roman history series. And with David Weber, collaborated on 1633, 1634, the Baltic War, and in the Honorverse entries, Cauldron of Ghosts, and all of those... Um, Crown of Slave's books. Um, Flint's latest Ring of Fire novel is 1636, The Ottoman Onslaught, his latest solo novel. Um, Eric was for many years a labor union activist, and he lives in uh, East Chicago. I think that's Indiana. Um, and uh, I know it is. It is. Yes. Uh, Charles, Charles Gannon, Chuck Gannon, is the author of Compton Crook Award-winning Nebula-nominated novels Fire with Fire, Trial by Fire, and Raising Cain in the Cain Riordan series. He's co-author with Eric Flint of 1636 The Papal Stakes and 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies um, in the Ring of Fire series. With Steve White, uh, Chuck is the co-author of the Starfire series entries Extremis and Imperative He's also the author of multiple short stories and and all kind of other stuff. He's a member of SIGMA, the SF think tank, which has advised various intelligence and defense agencies since the start of the millennium. And Chuck lives near Annapolis, Maryland, with his wife and children. So uh, so you've got... we're trying to get Urban right now, um, and some uh, some some various Vatican um, or at least Borgia uh, sent uh, Rome sent assassins are after him. Um, and then we have Pedro Delor, um, who is incredibly clever, and in that I mean part of the fun of this is the is his how. Um, is his moves, especially because he's up against somebody who's really smart in um, Sharon Nichols, right? Well, he's
3: well, up against the, a the bunch of very skilled is people. Yeah, and it's also really such more than Sharon. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Who uh, Sharon's married to.
3: Character. Yeah, Sharon's a major character in Vatican section, and will continue. In fact, many ways, she's sort of the central figure of... Especially where we're going to be going from here, but but when it comes to issues of, of security and milit, you know, the martial arts will call him. It tends to be her husband, Rui, who's uh, you know has much more experience than she does. But she is she's um, figuring
1: you know I mean? out who they're up against, right?
2: The way it breaks down in the book is that when it, if if you want to think of it this way, chief of intelligence and counterintelligence on site is is Rui. Um, he has huge amounts of experience from that. Just given the fact of his role vis-a-vis Bedmar, this would be a major part of of what he did. And so he's not overburdened. Um, We have another uh, historical character there, Owen Roe O'Neill, um, who is essentially on the on the sort of if they if you're talking about people carrying guns in units, per, you know, performing, if you will, the the kind of the duties that you would uh, associate with um, a larger armed guard with various tiers of with with various tiers of defense. That's sort of how that split goes down. Um, and uh, and you were saying uh, that that Dolor is working. For an entire different. It sounded like you were moving there, Tony. Is that where you were saying?
1: Yeah. um, Just expand as far as we can without uh, spoiling anything.
2: Well, one of the things that I think we can say is that um, the attitude of Spain towards Borgia is, is that of a. If you were a parent and you had a kid who went around burning down houses. Tipping people, cows, and and you know, and and shooting their dogs, you know, you you can't disown your child, but damn it, you'd wish if somebody could stop it. And uh, so, so, but the king himself, of course, can't be involved, and probably and wouldn't necessarily support it overtly. But there's of course somebody directly next to the king who historically didn't trouble himself all the time with making sure that he got the approval of the crown before he took highly uh, significant action on behalf of the crown, and that is, of course, Bolivar. Um, uh, um, and essentially, it, we, have, we learn at the beginning of the book, and it's consistent with what we know from the end of Papal Stakes, that Pedro Dolor is uh, essentially Bolivar's um, agent. And so Olivares basically has has, um, given Pedro a, a mandate which essentially boils down to this. It is important that Urban dies. Urban is not good for us. But it is important that Borgia is blamed for it, which means it's good that Borgia has an assassination team in place. The question is, will they succeed? That's... There's a great deal of doubt regarding that, and essentially uh, you've got you've got Pedro Dolor put in as a kind of uh, backup ringer, uh, a, a person who is there to try to make sure that somebody else does the job, and if not, that he'll do the job, but in such a way that it would be it would be assumed to be part of the people who are directly attributable to Borges' motivation.
3: Yeah, the problem, and this was set up all the way back in canon law, um, Borgia's coup d'etat was not sanctioned by the Spanish crown. Uh, They didn't realize what he was doing. Um, Now, he is himself Spanish, and he's a major figure in Spanish politics, and he's certainly a major figure in the... Reactionary wing of the Catholic Church at the time. So once he carries out the coup at the end of canon law, the the King of Spain and and, and Olivares, who's his chief minister, don't feel like they have any choice but to back him. But they're not happy with him. I mean, this is not something they planned. And see, he's presented them with a really kind of awkward situation all the way around. So on the one hand, they have to back him. On the other hand, um, they want to be able to keep a definite arm's distance away from him, especially when he, he's a bloody son of a bitch. I mean, you know, he, 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 you know, <laughs> I have no, he really idea. is. I mean, yeah, I he really carried am. out a purge of the Catholic Church. that never happened in history. Um I mean, there were splits and and plenty of conflicts in the Catholic Church. This is the first time in the history of the Catholic Church that you had an actual massacre of cardinals, uh, quite a few of
1: them. This is a a period where Spain is very powerful. I mean, we might think Spain, you know, secondary European country now, but... uh,
3: No, no, we're in the period of... of, uh, Generally, it's the reign of Philip II at the very height of the Spanish... Uh, power, and Philip II is gone now, but he hasn't been gone that long. I mean, his, one of his daughters, uh, Isabella, is still one of the ruling figures in the Netherlands. Right? So Philip II, I forgotten what relationship he had. We're, we're in, into Philip IV right now, and I'm trying to remember, Chuck, uh, he was his, what, grandson? Mm-hmm. Philip II's grandson, I believe?
2: Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. Uh, I forgot what happened to Philip III. Um, I'm kind of blanking on him. Um, So we're still close to the... We're we're a little past the real prime of the Spanish Empire, but we're not much past it. And uh, Spanish armies are still considered the most powerful in Europe. Um, And they're a little outdated now because they've been sluggish about reacting to the new technologies and tactics that... Are sort of being brought in by the Ring of Fire, but they've still got an incredible infantry.
0: Um,
3: that I mean, nobody the Spanish infantry lightly. Um, so they're very powerful, yes. Um, but they're also they've got a lot of problems now um, of all kinds of different political and military nature, which.
2: Well, you and if know, I, I mean, could add, add economic. Is, a huge yeah. Yeah, economic, economic problem. Yeah. They've had economic yeah, problems yeah. for a hundred years, and in the next, uh, in the next book that is set in the Caribbean, um, something is going to occur, and it's actually this is teased at the end of um, at the end of uh, Vatican sanctions. Vatican, that that, something yeah, occurs yeah. there that is going That'll to the, make it yeah. just that much worse. Yeah. Be the next novel Chuck and
3: I do together will be the it'll be the direct sequel to Commander Cantrell in the West Indies and will lead back into the main line of the series, um, which I will not go into any further than that because that would
1: avoid a whole lot of spoilers. Well, so a raid against um, our our good guys in the book are um, a couple of groups. One of them is the Wild Swans. Um, the uh, wait, who are who are these guys? Wait,
3: who are which um, guys?
1: Um, the good guys, or or at least the the guys that are on urban side.
2: Um, well, you've got uh, two different groups. Okay, go ahead, Eric.
3: Well, yeah, I've. There's uh, two different groups. First of all, um, the um uh, the, the US, the United States of Europe and specifically the Americans who are, you know, very, very small percentage population, but very influential, are are very closely tied to Urban now. Um specifically through Cardinal uh Cardinal Protector Larry Mazzari. Urban is, is took the position that he is essentially championing Vatican two. Not quite. You know, I mean, there's some modifications, but he has decided that the Ring of Fire was not satanic in nature at all, and that the the documents that were brought are legitimate. And, and you know, he, he can't impose them immediately, directly, exactly as they were, because there's hundreds of years of history that haven't gone by, but he's, he's moving in that direction. Uh, and also, and he is a very is lame duck up. pope. Yeah, yeah. And Borgia, Cardinal Borgia is doing the exact opposite. And that split we haven't seen it yet, but that split's going to go all through Europe. I mean, different branches of the Catholic Church, uh, uh, as we will see later now, is the, the Polish Catholic Church is, is backing Borgia almost 100%. Uh, the French, as they usually did, were playing their own game. Um, the Spanish, of course. Anyway, never mind, I'm not going to go into that, but Uh, You've got the U.S.C. and the Americans backing Urban, and you also have a very influential and powerful, I mean, a whole lot of cardinals and other prominent figures of Catholic Church are not happy with Borgia. So, for instance, the the, uh, Father General of the Jesuits, the is supporting Urban. And on the other hand, there's a split within the Jesuit order, too which you don't see much of that in Vatican's X. that will come up in later books. But uh, um, there's a whole lot of different things going on. So part of what happens is that you've got forces within the Catholic Church that are supporting Urban. And, uh, you know, it's hard to go much farther without getting into spoilers. But... Um,
1: well, let's talk about and let's then, talk about the 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 soldiers and and such, um, which includes so the wild he, swans, right? They're 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 sort of the Vatican guard. One
2: thing I
3: was going to say. thing I was going to Yeah, yeah. One of the things that's happened is that the Hotspur family, which is the most powerful family in Europe, has now three branches. In real history, they had two. The Spanish and the Austrian Empires were ruled by Habsburgs, who were basically cousins. And now you have the Netherlands ruled by a different branch of the Habsburg family. And the the Netherlands and Austria are quite close, and they're getting further and further distant from Spain. Um, So you've got a division within the Habsburg family that's getting pretty sharp, and that division is also reflected in which branch of the, of the Catholic Church they all support, because the, the, the Netherlands and Austria tend to support um, and But nobody wants to have this come out all the way into open warfare, civil war among the Habsburg. Uh, everybody's trying to stay away from that, but there's a lot of conflict there so there's a it's a very complicated political situation
2: and the anyway. and that third branch is, is further complicated by the fact that that third branch is actually fundamentally now founded on a fusion between the two different branches because the wife the 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 the, the wife there is from the Austrian branch of the Habsburgs, and uh Fernando who is, from, is the younger brother from the Spanish branch of the Habsburgs. Uh, this creates yeah. a very, very difficult position for all concerned. <laughs> Tony, you were asking yeah. about the soldiers? Yes. Oh, um, so as I, I take it that you mean the soldiers, for instance, the ones that are we see protecting the uh, urban 8?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, it...
2: Okay. So... Really briefly on that one, you've got the locals who are placeholders. Um, it, it, uh, they, they're not going to probably uh, do much when it comes to a, uh, a seriously skilled and even moderately well-planned assassination attempt. Um, and there's reasons for that, one of them being that the best of the troops are off campaigning with, with Bernard. Bernard, uh, the, the, Duke, the new Duke of Burgundy, is off grabbing land. Um, which, frankly, um, it's, A, totally in his nature to do so, B, he's taking use of, I guess, what you could call a kind of, not exactly a power vacuum, but there's sort of an interregnum of of who's in charge of exactly what, ranging all the way from from Schwabia all the way up to, you know, halfway up the Rhine. And there's a a bit of a... it's, it's sort of a, 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 a grab bag situation where everybody is coming in and trying to, and trying to get pieces. And uh, the more pieces he gets, the more secure his attempt to create this new revised Duchy of Burgundy is going to be. So, his, so all of his best troops aren't even there. So you've essentially got um, second-rate troops and militia in the town. Um, So in order to bolster that, the U.S.E. has sort of three different elements. One element we don't see very much, which is for ambassadorial protection and protection of the places where they're staying, which is the U.S.E. Marines. Uh, We see them very, very rarely because they're not, for a variety of reasons, they're not the ones put out in the field. This isn't something I really talk about in the book, but one of the things that that they're trying to do, the, the, the people... Uh, essentially, why Besançon? Besançon is a is a, a gathering of the cardinals. It's a, it's a call and something else. It is an it. And this isn't giving anything away. It is essentially an interfaith, a um, a uh, uh, an ecumenical uh, gathering. It's the first one since I think uh, the Council of Basel, which actually never got officially ended. Um, and and this is this is Urban's first step in trying to create a dialogue that's going to make the sort of highly modified version of Vatican II. I call it Vatican 0.1. Um, sort of, uh, sort of, um, it, it 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 can't work unless the people on the other side are going to have some sort of receptivity to it. Unlike Vatican II, in the in the latter part of the 20th century, there had been a variety of ways in which the different faiths, particularly amongst the the, the Christian template, had been sort of working more closely together. There there was there was a variety of sort of moderation that that made it uh, uh, it was still for its time considered a dramatic change in. The Roman Catholic Church, but that was, that, bear in mind that it was still considered a dramatic change given all of the, essentially, the intentional and unintentional groundwork that had been laid in cultural change before it was, it, before John moved forward with it. In this case, you have none of that. You have, you have still people fighting bitter religious wars. The, you know, the, 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 the sequelae of, of the Thirty Years' War, the, the, the Reformation, Counter-Reformation sort of headbutting is still being played out in places, and it is into that environment where Urban is going to have to say, we've got to create a basis of conversation. So he he, he calls what will ultimately be called the Council of Besançon, in an attempt to create just an environment in which people can talk. Mm. People across the faith can talk. That's his motivation. Now, that's the reason that the U.S. Marines are chosen for essentially embassy protection. Because if you put somebody on the streets of Besançon in the uniform and the livery that's associated with the U.S.E., that basically it's going to be too easy for people to point at this and say, "Oh, this is stage. This is a this is this is theater. This is not this is just this is just a political initiative that Gustav has made happen." We can tell that by who's running the show. So they're off the streets. What you're left with are um, the wild geese. Who are, by the way, every single one of the wild geese. Down to the smallest foot soldier, this may this may freak you out a little bit. Uh, are historical. Um, there's mm. there's a book I have, literally sitting in arm's reach for me, called "Wild Geese in Spanish Flanders." 1582 through 1760 by a, 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 I believe a Jesuit by the name of Jennings, Father Jennings, which went back and it found all the um, all the correspondence between Isabella and uh, and uh, and Olivares and her, and the king. Uh, Philip Four, and so what I did when I've actually populated these units is I went back. I go in the in in if you will the because because as the Spanish were always very careful about their money, uh, you know who who was serving because they are they're entered in roles. And they're on they're on the crowns they're on the crowns uh, you, you know um, doubloons as it were. Um, so I'm able to go back and find all the sergeants, all the privates, all these people are drawn from those lists. In some cases, you get little hints of who they were, when they served, or under who, or what sort of what sort of predilections they had, or things like that. And those are the ones who are the, the ones you see the most. And they would, in a sense, be the most neutral. They're not wearing anybody's livery, really. Um, and they have been chosen at the end of the papal stakes to wear the colors on their arms of the new papal guard until a new papal guard can be, can be, um, essentially reconstituted and stood up, uh, because all of the, the papal guard was, was essentially all of them were killed. Um, this is, this is done by my collaborator who claims he doesn't like bloody hands, uh, at the end, at the end of, uh, of canon law. Um. So the so urban asks this this uh, group of Irish they're Irish mercenaries but not in the way you think they have been mercenaries for um, the Spa- Spanish Flanders which is Spanish lowlands uh, since about six, uh, 1580 they started um, going there and the English made it possible because any Irishman not any Irish Catholic not in England was one less Or rather one, any Irish Catholic soldier not in Ireland, was one less for the Brits to fight. So they actually made, it was this very strange situation that they would, they would let well-known Irish Catholic war chieftains and leaders come into the country recruit because they were pulling them out to go to, um, to, go to the Netherlands. Uh, which made the Irish situation that much more controllable for the English. So you've got a bunch of historical characters there, and they, like I said, are sort of the—they're uh, the folks you'd see in the field. They're the folks on the street. They're the ones who are the most visible. There is a smaller second unit of something called the Hibernian Battalion, um, and they—they they were established early on by um, like uh, the what's what's Weber's first? not not David Weber, but the um, what was his name? Christopher Weber. The one who did couple Christopher, Christopher Weber. Weber. Did a did a really amusing and wonderful and I, I think a, a really important I guess it was a novelette or novella um, called The Company yeah. Men, in which in which we have this mercenary group um, that that is led by an Irishman and an Irish Protestant. Uh, excuse me, an English Protestant and an Irish Catholic, and you can imagine the banter that ensues. Um, the Englishman, in addition, is an absolute devotee of of almost all things uptime, time, particularly movies, and quotes quotes lines, for instance, from Kelly's Heroes, if you can believe that, which I love. I mean, it's it just just some some beautiful stuff in there, and that grew out of that. grew This I I saw this, and I said, you know, they have so the up. So the uptimers have um, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the group under Lefferts, the, the wrecking crew, as kind of the, the in the original sense of the sort of Balkan and, and South African sense of the word, they, they're commandos. They are not professional soldiers, but to some degree that's their advantage. They are they are about unconventional warfare, getting in around the, if you will, the, you know, the corners and, the, and, the, and getting in the cracks and getting the job done. But it struck me as I was going on that with that you don't have enough Americans to actually, you don't want, you know, when you've only got 3,000 so Americans left running around, you, you know, if you put them in the line, they're not really going to last very long. So it stood to reason that they would want um, an elite conventional formation, sort of like a Merrill's Marauders or 75th Ranger Regiment or something like that. Well, Thomas North sees the opportunity for that, and strikes up a sort of, let's say, an exclusionary contract with, um, with, with USC, uh, or rather, uh, because it's really not the USC. It really is uh, Thuringia Franconia. So uh, far, more, far more tied and responsible to national interests than Blackwater, but in the sense that Blackwater is sort of a dedicated, uh, if you will, servitor of one nation's interests, so the same is the case with the hibernians and they are the ones who are in what you might call the elite situations they provide the snipers they provide close security they're connected with heavy weapons
1: yeah. and On they the, have um, they but, have better guns right i mean they have percussion caps
2: well you know they have much better than percussion caps they have lever action uh, 40 4072s 40 4572s these were these were buffalo guns actually these are huge guns. They're lever action, but they ain't your they ain't like, you know, the rifleman Chuck Nor uh, uh, Chuck whatever his name was, who was in the rifleman, that TV show. Chuck that, Nor- that dates me. No, not Chuck Norris. No.
1: Chuck Norris Chuck uh, Connors. No,
2: Chuck Norris yeah, is
1: a- the Connors. I- uh, Connors, there you go. <laughs> Connors, there you Chuck go.
2: Connor. Um, Chuck Connor, yeah. yeah. There you go. There you go. It's not one of those little, you know, Indian War carbines. That's not what we're talking here. These are get hit with one of these, you will go down.
0: Yeah.
2: Um. And uh, and they and they do have, but they do have your rights. Percussion cap revolvers. So their ability for uh, long distance combat and close in, you know, CQC, close quarters combat, is uh, and they're trained in it. That's the other thing. Giving people these tools is you know if you give it to them with training, you may be creating you probably are creating more of a potential for havoc amongst your own forces than for for your opponents. but when you teach people uh fire discipline how to work with superior rates of fire, you know m- maneuver uh- man- you know the 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 combined arms approach to to combat in general movement and fire uh, and supporting fire. They are a small, but they're a very effective force. So, I and I'm I'm figuring you're, you're asking that question because I have fun writing them. I know Bane readers love to read <laughs> probably the stuff they do, and it is they're a ton of fun to write because it is this real fusion yeah. of 20th century thought, 19th century technology, and come, that are that are being executed by 17th century individuals. And that you know, I live for a moment like that.
1: Yeah. And it's that's just cool and the way the technology plays into to it all as well. Um well th- we we have a setup. Um sounds I mean it is incredibly cool setup. Uh probably a, a good place to, to not go any further with um with the plot, but um it, we got a we got a Pope, we got some really bad people after him, we got some really effective guys uh guarding him. And uh we have the uh the fate of, um, of Mardinarty <laughs> within the Catholic Church at stake. Um, so what? Uh, obviously we've been talking about some of the future projects that um, you guys have, of course, moved ahead with. Um, what, what are you working on at present? And what do we have upcoming with uh, Ring of Fire as well? Um,
3: okay, what's coming up next with Ring of Fire... Um, in February, is uh, 1637, The Volga Rules, which I wrote with Gorkov and Paula Goodlett. And that's a direct sequel to 1636, The Kremlin Games. It takes place in Russia. The Russian line of the story is still somewhat disconnected from the rest of them, um, just because it's taking place so far away. Um, The next thing coming out in June is um, Granville Gazette 8 which will be the eighth uh, collection of stories from the Grandpa of has got a new story by me, which as I play this running game, which I start with Jim Bain, and then after Jim passed away, I continue with Tom Kidder, our artist, which is he does the cover, and I figure out a story to match it. So um, in the case of story I wrote, it It has further adventures, those two uh, cops in Magdeburg that... Uh, that David Carrico originally uh, introduced the series, and he and I used in um, the Devil's Opera.
1: Oh yeah, that um, was really fun. Uh, and fun team up. Huh? That was a really fun team up. I like that book a lot.
3: Yeah, yeah. This is we continue the uh, further adventures, and this one is <laughs> the premise for this one is a horrible pun that Laura Runkle came up with many years ago that I, which was big cart before the whores. And I've been waiting for years to write a story where I illustrated that and while I was at it, it's kind of a tour de force, because the whole plot is structured around five puns. They carp before the whores, the carp before the horus, the carp that is the eye of horus, the carp before the horus. As in the Roman poet, the cart before the horse, as in can't speak, and the cart before the horse is in the animal. And those five puns are what I use to structure the plot, which is tricky to do, and but a lot of fun because uh, you can't just make it a gimmick. You have to actually have a plot that works, uh, which I do. It's the murder. It's basically what happens is that cart been kidnapped, um, and. Um, Anyway, I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, That's coming out in June. Uh, Then I have two more books coming out. Um, Well, actually, probably three coming out the rest of the year, but they're not 1632. They're not Ring of Fire series. The next Ring of Fire series book will be my solo sequel to uh, 1636 The Ottoman Onslaught, which right now I'm calling 1637 The Polish fracas, but that won't be the final title.
0: And I have not
3: think is going to
2: make the cut,
3: yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's not. But it, it'll mostly take place, no, mostly but not entirely take place in Poland, although I'm going to be also laying the basis for a future novel that Chuck and I will do, but we can't do that one until we finish... The next one we'll do, which will be the sequel The Commander Cantrell. The title for that, we know the title. That'll be uh, 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. Um,
2: no Peace I or War Beyond know when the we're Line. Gonna, huh? I thought you. Because we were. Was it War Beyond the Line or No Peace Beyond the
3: Line? Uh, no, no. I, I think the original no expression was No Peace Beyond the Line. I think we should stick with right. that. Um, okay. Uh, because that
2: was the original expression. Which... Yeah. Say again. Well, actually, if you remember, when you Skyped into uh, to the minicon at Baltimore, in Balticon, I think I was the one saying No Peace Beyond the Line, but you wanted to shorten it, I thought, to war, The War Beyond the Line. But I'm. No, no, no. I, I like, I like no, I no, I like
3: No Peace Beyond the Line. Uh, okay. And that's Good. the actual cool. expression. Uh, oh, yeah. And for here. those of you no not, not familiar with the expression, it was there was officially, I forgot who actually came up with the saying, but but what was understood in the 17th century was that it didn't matter what truces and peace arrangements were made between European powers and Europe. Once he got beyond the line, which was the line originally drawn, uh, I've forgotten by which pope, but which divided the it was, world. It was between two before.
2: Yeah, was
3: the it, Yeah, yeah. And officially, the line sort of separated Spanish and Portuguese influence. But, but right. basically, the expression was, "Doesn't matter what the what happens in Europe. Once you get out of Europe into the New World, or for that matter into the East Indies, there's no peace. Uh, and everybody's continuing to fight. So, that'll be the next book, Chuck and I do. And I don't know when Chuck's going to be ready to start on it because he told me, but I don't remember his writing schedule right now because he's got other projects going of course. Um, But the next 1632 novel I'll be writing is my solo uh, novel, which will be a continuation of the main line of the story. Uh, Most of it will take place in Poland because... There's a major subplot involving Mike Stearns, but for reasons that I don't want to go into because of all spoilers. He's got to kind of mark some time right now. Uh, so I'm going to concentrate mostly on what's happening with Poland, with Gretchen and, and Jeff Higgins. And, and of course, we still got those people hiding out in the cellars in Vienna that we've got to get out there. So that'll be a lot of the focus of that book. Um, then Ivor Cooper and I have finished the the China book the China Venture but I don't know when, that's not scheduled publication yet and um, there's other projects but we're sort of hanging fire on them right now um, because other things are being, uh, Walter Hunt and I at some point have to write a sequel to um um no virtues. Plus, we got to go back and we got to finish, we've got to do a rewrite of a book that we actually finished first draft of called sixteen thirty six the Atlantic Encounter, which takes place in New World. We're going to do a rewrite of that, um, which will be the next thing we do. Yeah.
1: Wow. Well, <laughs> this, this world is <laughs> is becoming a, an enormous spider web of... Um, There's plenty coming. Huh? The world, uh, the the world is becoming an enormous spider web. If you touch one part, the other part moves. You have to. Uh...
3: Uh, yeah, well, yeah, you got to be. It's a little tricky. There's a uh, there's a major event happens in Vatican section that will impact all of Europe. But we had to uh, Chuck and I had to figure out a way we could keep it hidden. Which we did because I had already written and we published Ottoman Onslaught, which actually takes place after Vatican sanction, and it works just because. uh, Well, I got to shut up here, but (laughs) when you get a series this long running and complex, yeah, it can get tricky.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, Chuck, what are what are you working on at present?
2: process of finishing up Mark of Cain, that's the fifth book in the Cain Reordance series, and um, I've known what I, this book has been very different to write, Uh, the reason for that being, I have, I've been taking notes on this book, audio notes to myself and things like that, in far greater, detail. for instance, when I started Cain's Mutiny, I had some notes, you know, I had a decent amount of notes, this one I had a huge amount of notes for, actually a huge amount of pre-writing done, because I've known what this novel was going to be, um, it's very different from uh, from the others in a whole bunch of ways. One of which is, if you go back and you look at the series, the Kenry Jordan series, you'll notice that the amount of time that goes bu- by between the end of book one, to the beginning of book two, is about three and a half weeks. The end of book two to the book of book to the beginning of book three is under ten seconds. The beginning of book. Four, or rather the end of book three at the beginning of book four is actually some decent amount of time, but it's only about two days of conscious time from Kane Reardon's perspective, because they go into cold sleep as they have to go to Torxar, the place where they've been sent to intervene. In this case, when the book starts, it has been 23 months. And I won't say what has happened in that period of time, but a bunch of things have happened. We know that that Cain ends Cain's uh, mutiny in a very very uncertain and precarious position uh, regarding earth authorities and whatnot um, and so uh, so when when you're in those first when, it, when you're in the first few chapters uh there's a you won't be disoriented, but you'll realize, wow, a lot has happened, and it takes a, it takes us on a very different journey. The um, it's the third book in what I've called my um, the emissary arc. The first two books were the contact arc, which was first contact and then first war. That's a generally two great flavors that go together, and um, and then the next three are I've always called the emissary arc, and they are essentially when you think about it, at the end of book. What starts happening is for a variety of reasons uh Earth has to go and meet its neighbors and in the third book, we meet finally the last neighbors we've really never seen in any sort of intimate fashion. It's always been sort of like the Wizard of Oz the people the, you know who's behind the curtain, and that's the Dornani and whatever people are expecting i can i can I think I'm safe assuring them that they didn't see this coming <laughs> uh, and that's all i'm going to say i will, all I will right. say, one thing about the end of this book, which is that the series turns 180 degrees around. That, whatever that means, you're just gonna have to live, wait and see. But wherever you thought it might be going, it ain't going there. So uh, that's the one that I'm I'm wrapping up right now to answer Eric's question. When I'm ready to work again, uh, that'll probably be February, I imagine. Uh, February, March, oh, something so, like that. that um, uh, how's for that for so, you? Okay.
1: Okay. Is that That's too fine. soon for you? I got other things I can do. I mean, <laughs> I, I assure you. you no, need no, more no. Time no. I can't. we'll we'll, uh, we'll let you guys work that out. But, uh, not,
3: well. Not, well, no, The reason uh, the the reason it's good is because I I try. There was a long stretch between 1633 and the next mainline book, which is 1634, The Baltic War, and that's because um, I wrote both of those with David Weber, and David and I are so busy that trying to get us together... To work on a book together is something we only do about every two and a half, three years. And when we do, we usually have to prioritize a book in his Honor Harrington series. So that's what happened there. So that was a five-year gap, and I said that you can't do that with a mainline book. So i like to have them come out every two years, um, or sooner even. And those were Eastern Front, Saxon Uprising. There was then a big gap between that and Ottoman Onslaught. And by the time the next book comes out, it'll been about two years since Ottoman Onslaught comes out, but then for me to be able to do the next mainline book, which I'll be writing with Chuck, he and I have to do this other book first, um, just because that's the way it works. So that'll actually be good, Chuck, if we get that one out, because then that'll... We, right. I just can't do the next mainline book until we
1: get that one out. Yeah. Well, when by the time that comes out, it's probably going to be tw- the 20th anniversary of the Ring of Fire series. Huh?
3: <laughs> uh, the re- first Ring of Fire, 1632, came out in February of 2000, so we're coming up to the 18th year since it came out. Yeah. Uh, and that's been 20 novels in 18 years, plus a lot of anthologies.
2: And yeah. So, you know and there's another uh there's another um ring of fire novel that i'm uh, i'm sort of uh working more in in i guess you could say in the in the the lead collaborator role with uh robert waters we're doing calabar's war which is also set in the new world uh, he's a character that you see very briefly in the first commander cantrell novel um, and this is his backstory, and it also takes us on a bit of a, a, a tour of other things going on in the new world, which is, of course, an incredibly rich environment, and uh, in many ways is a place where you will, although technologically it's not as advanced, there's a lot of, I guess you could say, polit- possibilities for political fluidity there, and that means it's a place where things can change fairly quickly, and that that's therefore makes it a, a really fun spot to play in. Coming out next year, already done, it's been in the can for a while, is the next Starfire book, Oblivion, um, which I think will, which series fans will find very satisfying. And uh, at some point, I have I have something that's a non-Bane book, so I'm not going to talk about that for very long, but it's an anthology set in a Kane orton universe, and um, that's, that's the. it's actually something I'm doing as a Kickstarter, and which uh, Tony is, uh, we've spoken, there was a reason, some of the reasons to do it outside of Bane was that I. I it's kind of a, it, it's, it's structure is very, very non-traditional, and I think as audience, its audience is going to be, um, potentially, this is really for people who are uh, already familiar with the series, so it's not a good entry point, point. and just a bunch of people, uh, other authors came to me and said, you know, is this ever going to be a sandbox we can play in? And I kind of said yes, and so this is, this is what's happening as a result of it. So that's mm-hmm. coming out next year. That's cool. That's
1: a, that's a Kickstarter project that you that it's going to be an anthology of Cain uh, of, uh, Reardon uh, stories. Um,
2: Although Cain Riordan only shows up in one or two very brief moments in it, it's really one of my feelings about the series, as, as probably most people are familiar with it can tell, is, is that I'm, I'm really determined to try to make it immersive in the sense that if you close your eyes, you can feel like you were there. Um, I, that that's that's very near and dear to my heart. So one of the reasons why I was uh, I was really interested and and welcomed the idea of having other people come in. I don't know that I would do that with the main novels or anything like that, but certainly at the level of, you know, it's if you've got one author working in a, a series, the, the whole world, the whole universe kind of gets imbued with that one author's voice, which is I think great, perhaps for the main thread. But you know, here I'm stealing from the best, Eric. Um, I think it's it's the diversity of different authorial voices actually, in a way, makes a place feel more real, because because reality is not created from one one artist's palette. You know, it's it's as diverse as reality is. So this was an opportunity to let other people come in, and what I said to them is find a place that you wasn't developed or a question that was asked that wasn't answered, and go for it. So there's going to be a lot of, I guess you could say, the, the places where they, if, if if you imagine the narrative as side of a sort of a huge locomotive with a big light on the front, these are the parts that that light would not have illuminated very long at all, that were just off to either side of the track. And I'm really, really grateful and and uh, excited because some of these stories are things I would have never even thought to write, and they have blown me away. So yeah. I'm, I'm kind of excited about that. And then when I'm done with all of that... <laughs> I
1: will be starting the first book in the Broken World, Epic Fantasy. Oh, yeah, the Epic Fantasy series um, that you've long wanted to write. Well, that's very cool. Yeah. Um, Well, the book that is out right now in the Ring of Fire series is 1636, The Vatican Sanction by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon. It's at booksellers everywhere. It's got a cool Thomas Kidd cover, and um, it's got a lot of of fun stuff. Um, Eric and Chuck... Thank you so much for being with us um, and talking about the Vatican sanction.
3: Okay. Thanks for having us, Tony.
1: This is another entry in Alliance of Equals a Liaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to re-establish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, Master Trader Sean Yos Galen and Corval's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself Denied docking and blacklisting, while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corville's traders, under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty Oscalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals.
0: Chapter 19 Vivilange Prosperu The status lights were a scramble of plain nonsense, The blue light alone held steady, and on that, Dov pinned his hope and his heart. Gods, what a tangle. The uncle insisted that the tree had seen ahead, leaving aside the questions, how far had it seen ahead and in what detail? Certainly to have foreseen the near death of his old body and their separate rebirths. Which it must have done, or why two pods, neither ripe and one for Aliana, given even before they had embarked on the Delm's mission. Had it then seen that the uncle would meddle with them, given the opportunity, and provided a cure for such tampering? The tree was a biochemist. It had been adjusting those of Corval to suit and serve itself better since, well, since jella himself would it i could not help but overhear your concern the uncle murmured interrupting this chain of speculation regarding corval material making its way into my control and your own unconscious collusion in this i would put your mind at ease Corval material has long been among my options. I had the sample from Contra herself, when her foster mother brought her to me, to be cured of the edit that had taken all the rest of her line. Dov looked away from the status board into the uncle's eyes. That's intended to reassure me, is it? The uncle smiled. You may find it reassuring that, though I have had free access to this material for such an amount of time, I have chosen not to use it. I applaud your wisdom. The universe is surely not ready for another Contra, never mind an Elen Taza in full. The uncle raised his eyebrows. I am desolate that I am unable to reassure you regarding the lack of Taza in our universe, he murmured. After all, Tanja Institute maintained its own records and inventories. There was a thought to take the breath, but Dav found his attention elsewhere. A familiar whispering inside his ear, distracting him from his thoughts. An aroma so delicious that it was impossible, nearly impossible, to think of anything save how delightful a treat was his to claim. He shifted, trying to ignore, but that was foolishness. His mouth watering, he reached to his pocket. The uncle turned from his study of the board to stare down at him. What ails you? My pod is now ripe he said, having it out of his pocket, his hand shaking with the need. Don't, the uncle began, but Dav shook his head. Necessity, I fear. I remain in the dark regarding the tree's plans and intentions. Prudence argues that I will experience an effect similar to Aleanna's." His voice was shaking. He must partake of the pod, and soon- I would spare you the onerous task of carrying me, Dov continued. Let us place me in that dock now. The uncle nodded and turned to the second unit. Dov gave one last look at the status lights over Aliana's head. Blue light steady, the rest in a madcap state of flux. Well, He settled himself in the second dock and opened his hand. The pod fell apart with unseemly haste, and he must eat of it now. He must, or he would die. But he needed no such urgings. He ate as quickly as he could swallow. An icy wave passed through him, freezing nerves, blood, brain. He fell back onto the pallet, with nary a sound, boneless as the dead. The uncle lowered the docks hood and gazed up at the status board, expecting to see senseless readings to match those reported for Aliana Kalen. Nothing so confusing manifested, however. All lights remained steady, save a working light on the bottom tier. Queried for more information regarding its work, it reported a routine immune system check. The uncle frowned. Immune system check. Hmm, and Davios Felium was Davios Felium, whereas Aliana Kalin. Spinning to the other dock, he stared up at the manic lights. All systems in flux, a terrible thought, surely an impossible thought, occurred to him. Even Korval's tree would not attempt. Well, after all, it could be checked. There was a deep diagnostic screen on the table next to the dock. It was the work of moments to wake it. Data began to flow as if eager for his scrutiny. The uncle, sighed. He very much hoped that Korval's damned tree knew what it was doing. Stew, Inky cried, leaning on the counter. You will be pleased to know that success is within our grasp. All that remains for us is to bring Admiral Bunter onto the ship we have chosen for him. Hazenthal stood one step back from the counter. She had accompanied Inky on this mission at Pilot Tokol's order, in case, so she had said, there should be any trouble. Thus far, there had been no trouble, save that Inky Rani Yo was a person of infinite curiosity, and had therefore peppered Hazenthal with questions on their way from Terrigan's berth to the repairs side. How long had she been the mentor's assistant? That was the first question, and had necessitated an explanation of her former working relationship with Tolly Jones. Ah, loyalty, Inky had exclaimed, and had gone so far as to extend a hand and pat Hazenful on the arm. He is fortunate in you, Pilot has. We should all have such friends. She had gotten used to Inky's way of speaking over time, and though she had never dared a touch before, Hazenthal found that it scarcely annoyed her. Came another question, this regarding Tokol's past. But there, Hazenthal was able to offer nothing. The pilot became known to me only because I was wounded, and she allowed me to be brought onto her ship to receive healing. Countdown had commenced, and she did not wish to delay her mission. She made the necessary clearances, and I was attached to her. Ah, I see. You know, there are not so many free AIs in these days, and those who remain untaken by hunters tend to be old and mobile and very subtle. A design such as we see in pilot Tokel, she might have been built yesterday. Inky sighed. A beautiful and gracious lady, to be sure. I am pleased to have made her acquaintance, and I very much hope that she is every bit as wily as she is beautiful. They came to the corridor that led to repairs, and followed it round, the air growing slightly colder as they went on.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the Starry Night Christmas Ditty by the Pleiades, complete with a special verse on interstellar Soviet industrial policy, an arousing finale that rins a hole in space-time and lets in a flood of joy and peace for Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon, authors of 1636, The Vatican Sanction. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.